This episode of Jesuitical is sponsored by the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. JVC is taking applications for placements throughout the country, like Homeboy Industries in LA and the International Rescue Committee in Atlanta. If you're age 21 to 35, apply online at jesuitvolunteers.org apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the congressionally young, civically hip, and bipartisanly lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Skira. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello. Hi. Happy Election Day. I know. I have a happy Election Day indeed. <laughs> What was that pause for? I haven't decided if I'm going to shame Ashley publicly oh, yeah, or not. No, I've, I've braced myself for this. <laughs> okay. All right. I was going to say, Olga, I noticed you're sporting a nice I voted sticker. And so are you, Zach Davis. Oh, thank you. Ashley, I've noticed you're not. I know. I, I have no good excuse, really. I refuse to admit that I've moved to New York, and so I'm still registered in Virginia. And then I got worried about like being prosecuted for voter fraud if I voted in Virginia. And so I didn't vote. <laughs> So you know what? I actually, I mean, you should have voted, but I also think more important than shaming you is recognizing the structures to voting that we put in this country. So that's what I'm going to focus on. All right, cool. What are we drinking, Zach? So exciting news. Uh, I feel like this is appropriate for election day. We are drinking uh, leftover beer uh, from my Halloween party, uh, and we're enjoying uh, beer from America's oldest brewery, uh, Yingling. Uh, so it's a twist off. So and everybody, it's an American tradition. Yes. I thought that would be louder. <laughs> My hands are too sweaty for this, you guys. I'm going to need help. because <laughs> you haven't you. been rock climbing. It's true. I'm just not as swole as you guys are. Oh, no. This is actually difficult. All right. All right. Cheers. To democracy. <laughs> All right. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week, we're talking with Steve P. Millies. He is an associate professor of public theology and the director of the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also the author of Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump. Yeah, and we wanted to bring you this interview this week. We recorded it last week, but it was a good uh, midterm conversation to have. Uh, Steve comes with a very deep knowledge of uh, the Catholic role in voting in this country. So we talked to him a little bit about that. Yeah. And again, we don't know the results of the midterms while we're recording this, but you will when you listen to it this Friday. Uh, so check out Stephen's book. It has great information, not just on this upcoming or election happening today, but also on the way that Catholics have voted since, as Olga mentioned, Roe v. Wade. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes with a spoiler alert. Uh, parents, we might be talking about Christmas and Santa, so if you have any young children in the room, uh, maybe escort them away. We're not this. trying to give away any of Santa's secrets, so yes. <laughs> please escort your children out of the room. All right. We've barely gotten past Halloween and someone has already ruined Christmas. <laughs> Bishop Edward Braxton of the Diocese of Belleville in Illinois told fifth and sixth graders last week that Santa Claus isn't real and parents are very angry about this. Yeah, a lot of the parents were super frustrated. They felt that the bishop took away their parental responsibility. Many of them state that it is on the parent when when they should break this news to their children. And I'm going to say that it's on the parent to break this news much sooner than no! fifth or sixth grade. Fifth grade? Have you seen fifth graders? They are yes. tiny. They, they are tiny. <laughs> they are also too old 
to still be leaving Santa Okay, Claus. but so the they he told the fifth and sixth graders, but then of course the fifth and sixth graders are going around talking about this and ruining Christmas for the kindergartners. No, that's no. I believe in the six, fifth and sixth graders more because I think of them as adults. Parents said they their kids were coming home in tears because the well, bishop. Yeah, had ruined I bet that was Christmas. probably a rude awakening, and the parents should have realized that. See, I find it so hard to kind of sympathize with this because i i didn't grow up in a household where i believe santa claus was real and i still a lot of the parents were saying that it ruined the whole spirit of christmas that the their only kids, pure thing that yeah, the their only kids have pure left thing i was today years old when i found out santa wasn't real <laughs> and i feel like i grew up in a household without no without believing santa was real and i still had a wonderful christmas tradition it was still like the spirit of christmas you know jesus and all of that was still very much present in our home okay i think that's an excellent point to consider with all of this. I think, you know, Christmas traditions like Santa are fun and they're they teach kids a lot of good things about gift giving and being good and but it is important to transition kids out of that to teach them the true meaning of Christmas. And so good on Bishop Braxton for doing that to the fifth and sixth graders of Illinois. All right. What's next, Olga? So on a more serious note, uh, the Supreme Court in Pakistan last week announced that they will be overturning the death sentence of Asia Bibi. She is a 47-year-old Pakistani Catholic and mother of five. She has been in prison since 2009 and was sentenced to death in November of 2010. She was charged with committing blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah, so this is a very controversial blasphemy law in Pakistan. And once it became clear that the Supreme Court was going to review Asia Bibi's case, uh, people started protesting in the streets. And some of those protests are turning violent and people are very concerned about her safety and people who support her safety. For example, um, a few years back, the governor of uh, Punjab province was assassinated by his bodyguard after uh, waging a campaign uh, to free Asia Bibi and overturn her death sentence. Yeah, so Asia Bibi has not yet been able to leave prison because they are concerned that they will actually be able to protect her her safety. Um, and this is something that Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have both called for her release. And a lot of people concerned with human rights in the West have called for this release. But to your point, I think it's really important to you know, lift up the uh, people in Pakistan who have actually put their lives on the line and making the decision to overturn this ruling. Um, so like lawyers and the judges are all facing death threats right now. Yeah. And a- Asia Bibi and her family are appealing to Western countries right now, uh, like the United States, uh, Canada, United Kingdom. Um, today, Italy said it was going to try and cooperate and uh, get Asia Bibi and her family out of Pakistan because they are, I think, rightly saying it's not safe for them to be there right now. So we're not sure if she's going to make it out of the country. She, as Ashley mentioned, she still has not left prison. So we'll be keeping an eye on this story. Yes. What's next, Zach? So our next story comes from a joint report from the Boston Globe and the Philadelphia Inquirer, who pub- teamed up for an article um, that outlined uh why the second wave of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church is happening. Yeah, and it's not because we are learning about new instances of abuse necessarily, but we are learning about bishops who did not really take those cases seriously when they when they learned about them, even after 2002 when the Boston Globe first revealed the depth of the sex abuse crisis in the church. And some of the details that are noted in the article, which was published on November 4th, is that more than 130 U.S. bishops, or nearly one third of those still living, have been accused during their careers of failing to adequately respond to sexual misconduct in their diocese. And this is not to say that 130 bishops who are currently still serving have been accused, but many of them have retired and, in fact, are still receiving church pensions and living sort of secluded, comfortable lives. Um, And it all sort of 
centers around 2002 when the Boston Globe published the report. But then after that, the U.S. bishops gathered in Dallas for their annual meeting and came up with a lot of reforms sort of with the intent of stopping sexual abuse. But those reforms did not really extend to having accountability for bishops. They, you know, they created the zero tolerance policy when it came to priests um, and deacons who are accused of sexual abuse. But it said nothing about what would happen to bishops if they were found to be negligent in dealing with these cases. Right. And the report notes that in an early draft of what was what came out of the document that came out of this meeting is known as the Dallas Charter. An early draft of that document referred to having zero tolerance for all clergy which would have included bishops, and it was later changed to just priests and deacons. Yeah, and so I think that goes a long way to explaining why people are so angry um, after this summer, because it it gets to this you know distrust that still exists in the bishops to really hold themselves accountable going forward, which, you know, they're meeting uh, next week uh, to discuss how they can put in... Uh, place uh, policies to hold bishops accountable, but it, it feels like they're they did address one crisis, which is stopping the abuse of children. And in, in, in many ways, they did after 2002. On the other hand, it feels like a lot of the bishops are just addressing a PR crisis and not a crisis of authority, of trust, of sin. And I think a lot of church going faithful want to see more accountability uh, from their church leaders. Whether or not legal recourses of action are available, we want more transparency. We want more accountability. We want less secrecy. We want less shuffling people around. We want less like shuffling them to live comfortable lives and receive church pensions. Yeah. And so the bishops, like I said, are going to be meeting um, next week in Baltimore for their fall assembly. Uh, so hopefully they will be tackling some of these issues and we'll keep you guys updated on what comes out of that meeting. Joining us via Skype is Steve P. Millies. He is the author of Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump. Welcome to Jesuitical, Steve. Thanks very much. And a fellow Loyola Chicago grad. I just thought I'd throw that in there. You couldn't let that one go. Nope. So So Steve, first question. Is there such a thing as the Catholic vote? Uh, The best answer to that is uh, yes and no. Um, both, both, and. Both, and. <laughs> both and is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And, and of course, that's because the answer has to have different dimensions. Um, no, because uh, being Catholic has made no measurable difference in the way that Catholics have voted in aggregate in at least presidential elections for more than 25 years. Uh, the Catholic vote in that sense is statistically indistinguishable from the American vote. Uh, that's a triumph of Catholic uh, assimilation into American life and culture from one perspective, I suppose. But then on the other hand, I always like to say that uh, even though there is no real Catholic vote that we can talk about, of course we talk about the Catholic vote because there are Catholics and we do think about how we vote. Uh, We have to take our uh, convictions of faith, our moral and ethical convictions with us to the ballot box, and we have to struggle with the choices that face us as voters and citizens in the light of those convictions. So, you know, from a a strict statistical political science perspective, there's not much to talk about. But as Catholics, there's an awful lot to talk about. And how does that compare to other religious blocs in the United States? 
We see a little bit more of an indicator among evangelical voters who certainly tend to vote more for Republicans. Uh, Jewish voters still are a very strong block of uh, Democratic voters. Um, Catholics in general have really managed to hit the American mainstream with, uh, with much greater success than both of those. So you argue in your book, Good Intentions, um, that the you talk about the moral decisions that go into Catholic voting and that a turning point in the U.S. history was the decision Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion. And you you draw a, a pretty clear line from that decision to the election of Donald Trump in 2016. So so what did that decision do um, to politics in general and the Catholic engagement in politics in particular? The Roe decision arrived at a moment in American history and in American Catholic history that was ideal for the prospects for division. Already in American Catholic life, American Catholics had come out of the Catholic ghetto of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents after being rejected as immigrants throughout the first part of the 20th century. Uh, They had won acceptance in the 50s and 60s because they were dependable, reliable anti-communists in the midst of the Cold War. I should say, too, we had elected John Kennedy to be president in 1960. But we get into the middle part of the 1960s, and suddenly you're reading about uh, Catholicism in the pages of Time magazine and The New Yorker. Um, But what also happens is that the changes of the Second Vatican Council are not received by all Catholics the same way. Some are encouraged by them. Others are frightened and disturbed by them. One could still say that today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's polarization that goes on. It's a pattern that continues and reverberates. Uh, The next thing that happens is Umani Vitae in 1968, and there again, there's a differential reception where uh, some are very disappointed by uh, the encyclical and others are quite encouraged by holding to the traditional teaching on contraception. Uh, Roe really uh, brings that fracture inside uh, the church, those differential responses, brings it into contact with an American political issue so that now a division that's already begun among Catholics has a way to get out into our political conversations as well. And and that has carried us forward through culture wars and lots of other things. You say that Catholics have played a pretty big role in those culture wars and in the polarization um, that we see today. How how have Catholics um, contributed to the divisions that are so prevalent now? Catholics come out of uh, the experience of the Roe decision in 1973, uh, slowly at first, but eventually with greater determination, uh, convinced that they need to embark on a public policy campaign. This is particularly the U.S. bishops, uh, a public policy and political campaign to try to get the Roe decision reversed. Uh, And this then begins to shape not only the bishops' encounter with American politics over the next three or four decades, But because the bishops are speaking to American Catholics through their parishes, through Catholic publications and all sorts of other ways, it begins to shape the way that American Catholics start to think about politics as well. Uh, I would point most importantly to the meeting that the executive committee of the U.S. bishops uh, had with the two presidential candidates in uh, 1976, the first presidential election after Roe. Uh, Archbishop Joseph Bernadine uh, came out of those two meetings uh, and said that the bishops had been disappointed with Governor Carter, the Democrat, uh, who uh, uh, had supported the Roe versus Wade decision, uh, and said that the bishops were encouraged by their meeting with President Ford, uh, who was opposed to Roe. Uh, It was those two words, disappointed and encouraged, 
uh, that really began to shape what was a fundamental realignment of Catholic voters, many of them, uh, shifting over toward the Republican Party. But overall, uh, deepening uh, that division both inside the church among Catholics and then bringing that division out into American politics. You mentioned the bishops uh, in their role on the Catholic voter. What is that like now? Do Catholic voters respond uh, in the same way today as they maybe did in the immediate aftermath of Roe to what the bishops are talking about? That's a difficult question to answer because so much has changed in the last four or five months. Exactly. Um, you, meaning like yeah, the sex abuse I, crisis again coming up. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, so for that reason, I, I strongly suspect right now the answer is that the bishop's influence uh, on political thinking and a lot of other things may really be, in our experience, at an all-time low. But I, I think in a greater sense, what we have to remember is uh, I'm, what I'm not trying to do is talk about a a sort of a caricature of how Catholics relate to the leadership of the church, that the bishops or the Pope tell us what to do and this is what we go do. That's not really the point, but it's also, as it's always true of stereotypes, there's some truth in them usually. Um, you know, we think that way about Catholics because we do have a centralized hierarchical organization that does have some influence on how we think, if only because we're exposed to it all the time and because there's a capacity to drum out a consistent message. Uh, it certainly is uh, not the case that all Catholics have listened to their bishops through all of the faithful citizenship documents that have come on down since the 1980s. But it is also the case that the division, the way of looking at politics as an us versus them, a right Catholic answer and a wrong answer offered by somebody else, that kind of thinking has really imprinted itself on us and, and Catholics, in turn, have helped to imprint that on the wider American political conversation. Is is that something unique to um, the way that Catholics engage in politics in the United States? Um, has, has kind of like the American way of doing politics kind of infiltrated the church in a way that maybe it hasn't in other countries? Uh, my sense is yes. Uh, I, I've had some personal experiences uh, over time meeting with scholars and others uh, from other parts of the world uh, who have assured me that uh, this way of looking at things is a strictly American problem. But I also think that, um, and this is part of, of what I think we have learned over the last four or five months through the uh, testimonials after testimonials after testimonials of Archbishop Vigano, um, I think we have perhaps learned too that this American polarization uh, is a, a gift that we have given to the wider church increasingly too outside the United States. Uh, I suspect and regret to say that polarization probably, I think at this point we can say, has found itself out of the United States and into the larger church. And Steve, um, you know, we're, we're talking to you almost a, just a little under a week before the elections, the midterm elections next week. Um, and I think a huge issue we've been seeing around the country is voter disenfranchisement. So what would a, a Catholic campaign uh, to fight this sort of look like? Well, uh, fundamentally, of course, um, Catholic faith tells us that we are all created in the image of a loving God exactly the same way. Uh, we have to. I mean, it's a principle that corresponds rather nicely to the principle of one person, one vote. Anything then that is a cause of inequality, anything that silences anyone in the voting process or any other process, it seems to me, is inimical uh, to to what Catholic faith asks us 
to bring with us to the ballot box. It's, it's often not very well appreciated, but in that way, Catholic faith is actually quite friendly to the democratic process and the kinds of politics that we practice here in the United States. I, I would argue that kind of disenfranchisement, uh, whether it's disenfranchisement for racial reasons, as often it is, or strictly political reasons, as it often is as well, uh, that kind of disenfranchisement ought to get us very angry. Uh, but of course, part of the problem is we have spent the last 40 or going on 50 years approaching politics in this zero-sum sort of way where there's an outcome we want, whether it be reversing Roe v. Wade or whether it be dealing with poverty or education or health care. We've approached politics in this very zero-sum, very American way that Donald Trump does too, that somebody else is wrong and we just need to win. We just need to beat them. Uh, and it, 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 it tends to discourage us from thinking about how everybody needs to have access to the process, even if they disagree with me, uh, because that's the thing they're entitled to, because they're a member of the community just like I am. And have you seen anything at like a local or national level on that where the church is encouraging that? Or is that sort of like an, a missed opportunity? I, I think it is on the list of missed opportunities. Yeah, I'm not aware of anything. Uh, I, I've been sort of discouraged, for example, too, as far as I know, the uh, USCCB was was very quick to come out with a statement about Pittsburgh, but 14 bombs were mailed out last week, uh, mostly to Democrats and people who have been criticized directly by the president in his rallies. I'm not aware of any response to that either, and I, I think that's a terrific missed opportunity. I, I think that the church is so captured by its own um, and I mean the institutional church, the Bishops' Conference principally, is so captured by its own way of engaging the American political process for the last several decades, I'm not sure it can imagine a way out. It's, it's, it seems very afraid uh, of engaging anything apart from the pre-selected set of issues that we're used to hearing about uh, from them about. Gratefully, anti-Semitism is one of them. I think that statement was was a good thing to do, but there are a lot of missed opportunities. Uh, voter disenfranchisement is one. The rising uh, tenor of political violence around us, both in our language and in things that are happening, I think that demands some attention. So does a, a wider engagement with uh, racism, both at work in the political process and among us, uh, explicitly and implicitly in the way we deal with immigration issues and other things, too. Um, there's, there's a lot here to be done. The conference isn't doing it. I think it's up to lay Catholics to do it, people like us. Yeah. Speaking of people like us and lay Catholics, something I hear a lot and something I've felt is um, Catholics who say they feel politically homeless, like um, neither neither party really reflects the fullness of Catholic social teaching. And sometimes that can lead people not to vote or to feel like they're compromising their values. Is that is that the right attitude to have or is it is that like seeing the vote as something too pristine and there's always going to be a compromise to make? Um, so just hold your nose and do it. <laughs> well, again, I think you've gotten it exactly right. I would say grab that uh, discomfort and hug it tightly uh, because, yeah, politics is not meant to solve all of our problems. I want to laugh, but I'm also a little disgusted by the idea that the 2018 election is going to be the most important election of our lifetimes, because of course it is. But then so will the 2020 election and the 2022 election, uh, because the wonderful thing about our system of government is nothing ever gets settled. Uh, we decide who we're going to be today, and then we come back and we do it again next time. Uh, voting and living in any human community is always going to demand compromises from us. Nobody is supposed to get everything that they want. 
And that's really the flaw uh, behind the thinking that leads us to polarization. We polarize because we decide I'm right, you're wrong, I have to win. Uh, we have to instead, I think, really embrace the idea of the imperfections in front of us. And then, as you say, hold our nose and do the best that we can because we're going to get to do it again. And in the meantime, the most important political engagement we really have is not so much the voting as it is the ongoing conversation that we're supposed to be having between the voting about the voting. We're supposed to be engaging one another and talking to one another and especially talking to people with whom we disagree. So, Steve, thank you so much for talking with us today. We've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or not Catholic, who would it be and why? Well, my goodness, I wasn't really ready for that at all. Uh, give me, <laughs> no one ever give is. Me just a mo- <laughs> yeah, give me just a moment to think about that. Um, wow. So um, I'll pick this one because uh, it's on my desk from the uh, Modern Spiritual Masters series, uh, the uh, prison writings of uh, Alfred Delp. Oh, uh, and this is uh, this is a nice connection. He was a Jesuit. He's a Jesuit, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, German Jesuit uh, who was executed by the Nazis. Uh, Delp's writings capture very much the spirit of that last question of having to live with imperfection and compromise. Delp's prison writings are about suffering. And suffering is, you know, it's both the, the terrible moments in our lives when we lose someone close to us or when terrible things happen, but suffering is subtle too. Suffering works at us. Uh, If you're living in this polarized politics today, you're suffering. If you've been disenfranchised as a voter for any reason, you're suffering. And and the question is is whether suffering defeats us or not. Uh, The question is is whether we become so discouraged by the suffering that we're experiencing that we give up, that we lose our spirit of responsiveness to the world around us, and we just decide things can't get any better which would have been a very easy thing for someone like Delp to do in a Nazi prison looking forward to his execution. Uh, But there's great faith that's found in suffering uh, in Delp's prison writings. And I think in times like these, uh, for all of us who are experiencing things socially and politically, and therefore even spiritually, and I, I wouldn't exclude the stuff that's going on inside the church, I think there's a great merit today in reflecting on how we respond to the suffering Uh, that each of us is experiencing. And I I point people to Delp for that. That's why he's on my desktop right now. (laughs) Amen. Well, Steve, thank you so much. The book is Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters, Road from Roe to Trump. Uh, You can find that. Where else can people find your work? Uh, I have a monthly column for a U.S. Catholic magazine. Um, And uh, from time to time, I think I've appeared in your pages too. The Claritians have been very, very good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Steve. Yeah, thank you so much. No, thank you, guys. This has been great. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Olga? This episode of Jesuitical is sponsored by the Jesuit Volunteer Corp. JVC is taking applications for placements throughout the country, like Homeboy Industries in L.A. and the International Rescue Committee in Atlanta. If you're aged 21 to 35, you can apply online at jesuitvolunteers.org slash apply. And one one announcement from me this week. Uh, I have one thing that I'm going to ask listeners to do, and if you've already done it, you're off the hook for the week. But we only got one iTunes review, one written iTunes review in all of October. Just one? 
and it left a bad taste in my mouth. Oh boy. I'm a little sad. Um, so if this is your one job, if you haven't done this already, take some time, get on Apple Podcasts, get on the get on iTunes. You don't need to have an iPhone to do this. Leave us a review, write about why you like the show, and we'll shout you out on the show next week. That's your one thing. Thank you. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a a consolation this week. Um, I was at service on Sunday, and my pastor invited a rabbi to speak before service started. Um, And this rabbi, Mike Moshkowitz, discussed the tragedy at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And he talked about all the violence and all the xenophobia and et cetera that's happening in this country. And he mentioned that despite all the ugliness that we're seeing and all the and the fear that we might have, we have to fight that with our faith. You know, as Christians, as people of the Jewish tradition, we have to use our faith to get us through these moments. Um, and just being in that interfaith space in that moment, you know, I'm always in Catholic and Christian spaces on Sundays. So just having him be a part of that and just the words that he offered us were so consoling and it wouldn't have been as powerful or as moving coming from the Christian pastor up there. So it was just really, it was, it felt really hopeful and beautiful to be in that space and to hear him talk on Sunday. That's great. Another great part of being in New York. We have so many different um, religious voices we can hear from. Uh, I also have a consolation that came from, from mass on Sunday My parish, St. Boniface, has a sister parish in Turkana, Kenya. Um, So I always knew that, but I honestly never really thought about it. I knew that, you know, we send money over there sometimes, and that was kind of the extent of my knowledge about it. Um, But during the homily today, our pastor, uh, he... He had pictures of our sister parish like up around the lector and he mentioned that he had recently spoken with people in Turkana and that they had committed to um, including St. Boniface and the prayers of the faithful at their church um, every third Sunday and doing like a special um, adoration uh, once a month for our parish. And it was the same week where the Gospels like... um, the, the great commandment, uh, love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And it was just like a really, I was just very moved by it. This idea of, of this partner parish of ours, like we often think about what we are giving them, but I had never really thought about them praying for, for me, for St. Boniface and how, how moving that was to like recognize that I am a part of this global church. Um, and that I, I need them just as much as they need whatever, you know, kind of financial assistance that we're, we're sending that way. Um, so it was a very humbling and, and, and moving experience for me. I started just like crying and the lady next to me was like giving me tissues. I was like, sorry, I don't usually get so emotional. Uh, but it was, it was really, it was a wonderful reminder, um, that, that being a neighbor, goes both ways. I I need neighbors taking care of me too. Um, And I really felt that this week at mass. I don't think I knew that actually. So no, that's uh, good. That's good to know. Um, What do you have Zach? I've got a consolation this week um, that kind of comes out of uh, some desolation. I found out that over the weekend that there's this like minor crisis happening in my family. Uh, But the consolation for me was seeing the way that my little sister is actually sort of stepping up in the family and becoming a leader and a model of God's compassion and mercy and patience for a lot of people who are feeling confusion and fear right now in our family. She's in New York now, so I get to see a lot of the, the way she interacts with people and the stresses that she might be taking on also. But I saw God's 
love reflected through the way she was acting. Um, and so that was my consolation this week, being um, taught God's love by my little sister. So That's great. Yeah. All right. All right. Take us out of here. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs inspired by the midterm elections. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. And you can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericaMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.